This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to the Out of Water podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and in the studio with me today is our pastor of spiritual formation, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. We're moving into the latter half of Ephesians chapter 2 this week in our commentary series, supporting the series of messages at Rio Vista Church, uh, One Body, One Mission. And I have to confess, Sam, I did not take the time to find out if this was all one sentence. I didn't either. I didn't either. I had the thought, but I forgot about it and never did it. I forgot to look also. So we don't know, ladies and gentlemen, we don't know whether, in fact, we're about to cover only the fourth sentence in the original (laughs) manuscripts from the book of Ephesians. You know what? People are probably like waiting for that. It's like, is this going to be another? Is this going to be another sentence? I don't know. Yeah, because, you know, the first half. Creatures of habit. I was waiting for you to be the engineer who makes things go beep, boom, beep. (laughs) You know, I. The problem is I don't want to get caught in a rut. I was I realized I was making those jokes every time I started, and I thought, hmm, I need to break out of the rut. I need to do something different this time. So this time I'm just being, I, I you know, part of it was before <laughs> things that happen before we go on the air or before we start recording. I was having issues with my microphone boom stand in here that the every time I would set it up, it would begin to sag, and I'd be chasing my microphone down toward my computer's keyboard. It was, it was pretty funny, actually. So I sat here trying to fix this for some period of time, and I'm spinning the microphone around, stand a boom stand around, trying to tighten it down on the stand, and finally Sam says, what are you doing? You know, you've been doing that for like 40 minutes, which wasn't true, by the way. That's a total exaggeration. But at that point, I broke out my Jane Goodall sort of impression, like watching the gorillas in the mist. You know, we've we've been watching them feed by the waterside for the last hour and a half. You know, so <laughs> just, you know, he was perfectly content to sit here and watch me spin the stand for a long time. So that's the that's the kind of heavy lifting academically that I bring to the show. <laughs> so we're this week, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter two, the latter half of that chapter from verse 11 to 22. And we don't know if it's one sentence in the Greek or not. I apologize for that. Um, but I think that this section is is really it's really intriguing to me as to how to we talked about this a lot at lunch. Sam and I did as to how to contemporize this and and make application from it because the one thing that struck me about it when I read it is that up until now Ephesians has been very I felt like it's very individual. It's talking about me individually, me. And, you know, God from eternity past had this great plan for me to adopt me, to redeem me. Um, Paul is making mention of me and giving thanks for me. And he wants the Holy Spirit to give me this, uh, the, you know, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And then, and then, of course, if you listen to last week, then Paul was the, and as for you. And then he went on and explained about all the problems that there were. And the, at that point, we went, yeah, all of you. All of, all you. of you. No, yes. I'm kidding. And then. And then God rescued me. But you know what? When you read Ephesians, it's actually, you read it kind of as a me. But if you go back through Ephesians and you look at those words, it's all us. Yes. You know, Paul really does. He's speaking corporately. You know, he's blessed us. He's chosen us. But it feels like he's talking to you. Like, this is me. But in this case, because because Paul retreats to the labels Gentiles, Jews, Israel, 
all of a sudden he's talking about me as an individual, but as part of a group. Mm -hmm. And so that took a bit of an adjustment on my part because now I feel like he's waving his hand and talking about all y'all over there, you know, to use the Southernism, all Mm y'all, how many people is all y'all? It's all that you need, you know, whatever, whatever we're talking (laughs) about here. Um, So, yeah, this introduced kind of an us and them, you know, yes. it's almost, you know, it's it's Jews and Gentiles, and now you're getting to this partition, and it's really nice, and it's really wonderful to be talking about, you know, us, you know, God with all of humanity, but now you're talking, he's, he's getting into the business of the Jews and Gentiles saying, hey, you guys no longer have any right to be divided. And that was something that uh, really struck both of us, actually, as we were reading it, is is that this does have some very contemporary echoes today because we live in a society that's very divided. Um, it's divided politically. It's divided really re- religious. Yeah, it's divided you, politically. You, you think so? It is. It's and it's divided <laughs> even within the church. You have people within <sighs> a church that go to uh, churches that are more liberal, that are more conservative, and yet we both uh, under you know we both follow the same Lord. We both worship the same. You know, God, we, we put our faith in the same Savior. We, you know, there's on the basics of things, the essentials, mm-hmm. we would come together and be in complete agreement. And yet from there on out, it's like two different religions almost, you know, and, and that's very divided. We're divided between, you know, north and south and east and west and rich and not rich and whatever. It's the most, I, I'm, I'll be 60 this year. I've never experienced the kind of deep divisions and, I, this is going to sound facetious, but it's not really. To some extent, it's I, I blame social media for a lot of it because there were because I think people have always felt this way, but just no one knew it. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, uh, the the I think you know I think it's uh, social media, but I think even before that, you know, it, I think it's generations before us had a humility. You know, it, it, yes. was, it was kind of the John yes. F. Kennedy asked, not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. It was, you know, how can I use my life for the good of everyone else? And the social media, I think, poured gasoline on this uh, narcissistic culture that we have where it's all about me now. And being all about me, the way that you exploit that, and both parties do it to some extent, you divide everybody into victims and oppressors. And so if you look, if you, I mean, you can go down the political platform of both sides. And by the way, it's not that different than the groups that Paul is talking to here 2,000 years ago. But you've got one side that's saying, you know, they victimize this group and this group and this group and this group and this group. And therefore, we have to unite and hate them. And anybody who disagrees with us is an oppressor and we're going to go after them. And then you've got the other party that is kind of playing the same book that's saying, hey, they're trying to do this to us and this to us and this to us and destroying our country and blah, 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 blah. And, I mean, it's the same playbook. It is. Going back, but it's all about me, and we never think charitably of the other side. They're just the devil. And so that's the scenario, that's the scene that we kind of open up with here. Because he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, and especially because... In in this case, these were Gentiles who had become part of this new faith, mm-hmm. and suddenly they were invading. You know, they were the foreigners that were coming into what had been up until that point a Jewish religion. I mean, even it, 
the early church was something the Jews were doing, you know, right. from a Roman perspective, from an yeah, from outside. Yeah, they considered themselves, they were still Jews and Israelites. They right. were just thinking that, you know, the Christians were saying, okay, we're still there. It's just the Messiah has come. Right. You know, they didn't consider themselves. And now we're a new religion. They considered themselves, you know, part of that same religion that had now been fulfilled. It was all the promises of the Old Testament that found their realization in Jesus. So they were still going to synagogue. Yeah. You know, they were still plugging around with the, the Jews who were like, that's not the Messiah. And it was causing all kinds of problems. And now Gentiles are being invited into the mix. And so <laughs> what you're saying is that the young Republican club just invited a bunch of people from the Socialist Party of America over for tea. <laughs> yeah, and it, it didn't go well. And it didn't go well. <laughs> so there we have it. Uh, and so that's some. That's how things open up here in in verse eleven of chapter two. And our outlines once again, as we compared them over lunch, we actually were the same again. That's which yeah. I'm sort of pleased about mm-hmm. that we saw it the same way. Um, so we see the 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 first three verses here of the passage, eleven to thirteen. Yeah, Ephesians two, eleven to 11 thirteen. To 13. And it starts off by talking about uh, what our condition is. Um, apart from Christ, if we're outside, speaking to us as Gentiles, that's, uh, that's in this, we ha- I guess we have to imagine ourselves as the outsiders, right? We're the mm-hmm. outsiders in yeah, this? Sure. Okay. We're Gentiles. I'm we're, Gentile. Yeah. I'm. Gentile, the, the word there is it comes, ethnos. It's where we get the word ethnicity. It really just means the nations. So you have the Jews and everybody else is a Gentile. So I would be a Gentile. You're a Gentile. Probably if you're listening, you're a you're Gentile. A Gentile. <laughs> So the verse 11 says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, I, I, I wanted to stop there for a second because Mark, what is circumcision? Yeah, <laughs> If anybody needs to have circumcision explained to you, go ask your father or your mother and they'll they'll explain it. Um, so the Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, that was a slur yeah. to, to Jews, right? It would have been a, for sure a slur to Jews. So you look back in the Old Testament, I mean, go back a thousand years before Jesus when you have David fighting Goliath, and when he comes up to, to taunt Goliath or to challenge Goliath, what's, what, is, what is it that he says? He says, you uncircumcised Philistine and we go, kind of given a medical diagnosis, so what are you doing here? No, that to be uncircumcised meant you are outside of the covenant of God. You are a, a pagan who's an enemy of God. And so to call somebody uncircumcised meant you're forsaken. You're outside God's camp. I, I just, I, I, in my notes, folks, I had this, this imaginary conversation going on between a Jew and a Gentile in which the Jewish person was explaining to the Gentile why they were you know, oh, so you're calling me a dog because I'm uncircumcised, and that means that I did what? <laughs> you did that to your, you did that to yourself. You did, and you think that was a good idea? You know that kind of a thing. So I, I imagine that was kind of a hard sell. They're actually, honey, get the children. Yes. <laughs> well, get get away from that man. And we don't want to, you know, from the from the Jewish perspective, we don't want to to minimize it because circumcision was. You were that was the sign of the covenant of God's Mm -hmm. blessing on you as people, and it was a hugely important thing to to them. Why? Why do you think God gave? He does he ever explain why circumcision? I mean, it would have been kind of a. I have my own theories on it as to why circumcision. So in Genesis seventeen, when God comes on and he he talks with Abraham about you know that. That the covenant, the mark of his covenant, that you're you're in his covenant community. 
is circumcision for eight-day-old boys. Um, why circumcision? And I think the reason for that is, one, it's, it's the part of your body that is going to bring forth all future generations. Right. And so it's not just a covenant that's for you. It's, a, it's an everlasting covenant that's going to come through you to your children, but it's also on the part of your body that's you know the most appetitive. And so it's a reminder that you belong to a God that calls you to rein that in. Um, and so you have both of those at play, you know, take, take out the, the sexual nature of it. And you got both of those at play in the heart of the Jews, which are saying, this is to our lineage, our bloodline, our descendants. And then the other side is, and we're very moral, you know, it's, we, we restrain our appetites and all you Gentiles, you're out. Mm. I also think there's a, a blood aspect to it. I yeah, mean, for sure. The the the, uh, the conflict between Moses and his wife, for example, because Moses didn't let his didn't have his sons circumcised, and yeah. it says that God came to where Moses was staying and was going to kill him. You know, so Zipporah was his wife's name, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. She she then circumcises their son and throws the bloody the foreskin, foreskin at Moses' feet, doesn't she? Mm-hmm, and she says, correct. you're a blood sacrifice to me or something You're a like that. bridegroom of blood. Yeah. And so I think there is a sense in which there's, a, it's, it's, there's blood involved. It, yeah. It's kind of sacrificial. Mm-hmm. There's, there's all kinds of, of, of potent meanings in it. I also think that it's the kind of thing that can't be hidden. It mm-hmm. can't be denied. It's like it's like people that think it's a good idea to get one of those face tattoos, and then later on, <laughs> not so much. Not so much. It's like <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think. I mean, if you're going to get a face tattoo, folks, that's your decision. But just to understand that there's none of us are going to pretend like it's not there. <laughs> just, I'm sorry. If if you if you get a big spider tattooed on your cheek, I'm looking at the spider. I don't I don't <laughs> care if you like that or not. I'm looking at the spider. So it is the kind of thing that can't be denied. It can't be covered up. or well, It can be covered up, but it can't yeah, be denied. I was going to say, it, it better be, be covered it up. It better be covered up. <laughs> but it can't be hidden. Yeah. And and when you are intimate, it's that yeah. thing that is, it's, it can't be hidden. It's, it's, it's absolutely there. There's a vulnerability sense to it also. Mm-hmm. So circumcision was an important part of, of the whole of the of the identity really of Israel yeah. as a as a people, uh, and if you were somebody that in the Old Testament there there are stories of people that came from other nations that said we want to worship your God we want to be uh, you know part of what and they were required to be circumcised right right if you wanted to come live in Israel and live as one of them and right. follow their laws and whatnot so all the Egyptians so after the Exodus all the Egyptians and foreigners that came with them during the Exodus before they go into the Promised Land they're you're you're getting circumcised yeah. so. If you were called the uncircumcision, that was not a good thing in, inside Israel. But it also means that you were separated from God. But Paul is, when he's talking about this, it's almost as though, uh, I, don't want, I don't know if the, mocking is the right word, but there's a sense in which he's, he's saying, down yeah, to it. he's saying, you Jews are making fun of these Gentiles because they're uncircumcised, and you think that's such a big deal. But look, I mean, what he, where he ends, it says, and he stresses this, he says, which is made in the flesh by hands. In other words, he's saying, what does that mean? You did it. You know, it's, it was done by other humans. This isn't God speaking, right? Where in Colossians, you know, which is a, a sister letter to the book of Ephesians. 100%. It, totally related. But anyway, there when he talks about circumcision, he's going to talk about circumcision of the heart. heart. Yeah, And so that's the one that matters. That's the one that Paul wants to emphasize. You're talking about all these outward things and ways that you can show how religious and how wonderful you are. 
you do that with human hands. Yeah. What matters is being circumcised in the heart. And so he's, he's kind of coming after the self-righteous, oh, look at us and how we follow the law. No. Right. And he's saying, no, because, that is not what's important. Because here, which is made in the flesh by hands, is referring to the actual physical circumcision. Correct. And not what the circumcision should represent, mm-hmm. which is their identity as as the people of God. Mm-hmm. So they so, they'd lost the they they were kind of going astray from what it was supposed to mean. They were like, yeah, 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 we 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 you know, we did that to ourselves yeah. and and we're special now because of that. But their hearts, you know, are far from God. Yeah. And so he's coming he's actually addressing the Gentiles and he's saying, "Look, you guys have been called these bad names, but you've been called these bad names by guys that are no closer to God than you are. They've done all these things with human hands. Don't take that label harshly." Mm-hmm. And he's going to go on from there, and he's going to explain what the important thing is. Yeah, and he's, he's talking to the, the Gentiles, and he's going to lay down five descriptors of these Gentiles, which I think are interesting. They sound harsh, but he's actually communicating something that's pretty interesting. So that's in verse 12. He goes on to say, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So are, those, are, yeah. are those the five so those identifiers? Are the five. I mean, you go through them and, and notice none of them. So, so the Jews back in that day were all about keeping the law, the ceremonial law, making sure that you did everything precisely, that you were circumcised, that you followed Sabbath, that you did da da da, and everything was about external appearances. And what Paul does at this particular time in the world, in the Roman world, the Gentiles were considered utterly wicked by Jewish cultures, mm-hmm. and they were, quite frankly. But Paul does not come to them and say, you fornicators. You know, He doesn't lay down a whole bunch of ways that they violated the law and the ways that they've fallen short. He very exclusively focuses on the fact that they're far away from God. Every one of these, every one of these things isn't, look at the sins you've committed. You should be ashamed of yourself. You know, it's, it's, hey, you're separated from Christ. You're alienated from the community of faith. You're strangers to the covenants of promise. Notice he doesn't say covenant of the law. Yeah. Covenants of promise. promise. You have no hope, and you're without God in the world. Every one of these things that he's coming to isn't saying, okay, and, and the way that you change this is now by becoming obedient. He's saying, no, you need to get into relationship. You need to get into community. Your great five strikes against you are all relational. They're all in how you're oriented to God, and you need to draw near. Mm. That's interesting because, again, one of the things you hear from people who are, they're outside the faith, they're, they're, they're living in a bad way and they know it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, yeah. they're like, ah, no, man, I got to get myself together. I got to get myself right. I know, I know, I got to clean myself up. And that's never what the message of the gospel is. That's never what no. this stuff is. It's, you know, yes, you do, but that's through a relationship. You know, you make yourself yeah. right through a relationship. It's yeah. not by stopping the things that you're doing. You, the first thing you do is you get in relationship with God. That's right. And yeah. then, you know, and, and if we really believe what the scriptures say, us religious people, you, you don't clean up your life because all of a sudden you put together a checklist and you're going to be religious and you're going to will yourself to be better. The way that the scriptures teach when you come into relationship with Christ, the Spirit takes up residency in you, and it's His power that begins to change your appetites. It's His power that begins to enable you to want and to do good works. 
you're you don't do good works so that God shows favor on you, right? God moves in you to do good works. Yeah. Verse 13, he kind of comes to the conclusion of this opening part of it. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I got to be honest with myself that if I'm a Jewish person and I'm living in the first century, I am so, I'm, I'm like the rabid guy that just despises the Gentiles. <laughs> I, I am the raving Pharisee. I know you I and, would be. You and Saul of Tarsus, Paul's yeah. former identity, you're going around persecuting the church. That's I, what you're saying. So I, what I want you to imagine, okay, you're, you're raising up this nice Jewish family. You're raising them up to to want to love God, to respect purity, to love others, to love God. You you love your traditions. You look back at all the wonderful things that God has done for your people over the ages and the kingdoms that he brought to David, and you want to see them restored. You want to see them come back to greatness. And all around your nation, which, by the way, is being controlled by these Roman Gentiles, all of their corruption, all of their yeah. sin, all of their appetitive lusts and perversions are filtering their way into your community. And you're thinking, I just, I got, I got to protect against that. I, I don't want them. I can't stand them. Get them out of here. I don't want them influencing my children. And if you're wondering, like, you look back in the ancient world, and I'm just going to give some examples. So if you lived in first century Israel or in a first century Jewish community, this is what the Gentile culture means to you. When you open your newspaper or when you walk around in your neighborhood, like for example, if you're in the city of Corinth, Corinth worships the goddess Aphrodite. Aphrodite is the goddess of erotic love. So at the temple of Corinth, which is at the summit of the city, they have a thousand prostitutes working around the clock to engage people in worship. I'll let you decide what the worship yeah, is. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. The emperors mm-hmm. all are building brothels inside their palaces. Caligula was known to have dinner guests raped and then would force them to recount the experience in front of the dinner party. They're just nasty. There's a string of emperors that are just awful. Suetonius writes about Nero, who's killing his mother, killing his wives, having a relationship with his mother, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so then you've got Nero, who one day, who feels bad about kicking one of his wives to death, who's going along the streets and see a, sees a young boy named Sporus that he thinks resembles his former wife. He has the boy castrated and marries the boy, according to these historians. The infanticide is rampant. You know, exposure is what they called it in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. So back in that day, you had a public policy called paterfamilias, which meant the man makes every decision in the home, every decision. And one of the things that that included was if you have a child, if you have a baby, the husband gets to determine whether or not you want that baby or whether or not you put it out on the sidewalk and let it bake, let the baby bake to death. Oh. And so they had no respect for, and that was, by the way, common. There's a guy, Rodney Stark, he writes this in one of his books talking about first century demographics. So, hey, listen to this. He says, infanticide was widely practiced by Greco-Romans, and it was especially female infants who were dispatched. A study of inscriptions at Delphi made it possible to reconstruct 600 families. Of these, only six raised more than one daughter, as would be expected The bias against female infants showed up dramatically in the sex ratios of the imperial population. It's estimated that there were 131 males per 100 females in the city of Rome and 140 males 
per 100 females elsewhere in the empire. They found letters from soldiers. There's one soldier who is um, in Alexandria at the time, and he writes a letter to home. This is the letter. He says, hey, I want you to know that I'm in Alexandria. Don't worry if they all come back and I remain in Alexandria. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son, and as soon as I receive a payment, I'll send it to you. If you are delivered of a child, if it is a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, discard it. You've sent me word, don't forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you not to worry. Uh, so this, there's just a total disregard for life. I remember reading in Plutarch, he writes about um, children in northern Africa that still worship these pagan gods. And you know, when they would go to worship the gods of fertility, the rich people would come, and if they didn't have a child to sacrifice, they would buy the children of the poor women, and then they would slice open their throats and worship. And Plutarch writes, and he says, they would offer up their own children, and those who had no children would buy little ones from poor people and cut their throats, while mother stood by without tear or moan. <laughs> the The Twelve Tables of the Roman, I know this is probably a little bit much, but... <laughs> But the 12 tables of the Roman law... I'm feeling a little gloomy here myself right now, yeah. <laughs> the 12 tables of the Roman law claim, just flat out says deformed infants should be killed. Seneca bragged that Romans drown children at birth who are weakly and abnormal. And, and the Republic, Socrates, right, says that a poor man who's no longer able to work because of sickness should be left to die. The Roman playwright Plautus says you do a beggar a bad service by giving him food and drink. You lose what you give. And you prolong his life for misery. So, I mean, you look at all the different ethics going on around the ancient world. There's no value of life. There's no value on sex. There's no value on family. Everything is just so perverse everywhere. And if you are a good Jew living in the first century, what are you thinking of that Gentile culture? They're worse than savages. They're savages. Get them away. I want nothing to do with them. And then here comes the early Christians. Saying, guess who's coming to dinner? Yeah, guess yeah. not. Guess who's coming to dinner? But guess who's grafted into our family? Yeah, it's 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 wild. Yeah. It, it was a big ask <laughs> of the Jewish communities. What the point we're going to be getting to here, and kind of the 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 big idea of this entire passage, all these verses, is that the family you thought you were a part of. You not. There's a there's a new family here, and that your identity as a Jew or your identity as a Gentile, your identity as a, a Republican or a Democrat, of a left coast person, a right coast person, a, a liberal or progressive or conservative, whatever your identity yeah. is, your bigger your higher identity is in Christ. Yeah. I just I try to imagine that. I try to imagine in our current culture because there's a lot of people in our country right now who I find myself in pretty strong disagreement with mm-hmm. um, on a lot of different topics, whether it's political views, whether it's views on distribution of wealth, whatever it is, I, I find myself in up and I try to imagine saying, I'm going to take this person into my home. I'm going to make them a member of my family. I'm going to treat them like, you know, I'm going to love them, yeah, not just that. treat them like I love them, but love them. Uh, that would have been something that would have really rocked my world if I had been, you know, somebody in that position. And and it says, you know, that that verse thirteen we just covered. It says, "But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." So these Gentiles, they know how they're seen. 
Right. They they know how they're seen by people in the covenant community of God. They know that they're pushed away. And here Paul, who, by the way, was once a zealous persecutor of of the church and anybody that you know was against those laws. Absolutely. Um, now he's coming saying, hey, Jesus has brought you near. Right. I want you to know you're in, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. You're in. That's the other thing, too, about Paul. One of the things I... Because Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He Mm -hmm. even calls himself that. He Mm -hmm. says that God has sent him to the Gentiles. And there is so much irony in that. There's, you know, it's massively because he was, he was one of the guys that would definitely have not had a high opinion of Gentiles. And then he has this encounter with God on the road to Damascus where he's going, by the way, to persecute the church again. Mm -hmm. He's, he's going to Damascus to persecute the church. So here you have this guy who was a zealot who's saying now to the Gentiles, come on in. Yeah. Come on in. Yeah. Verse 14, which is the start of of the next section in our outline here. Just the first clause where it says, for he himself is our peace. I was really struck when I read that because they're saying that this person is our peace. And it comes down to made us both one, broken down his in, the, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. So how is Jesus our peace? It, it's in his flesh. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's literally his sacrifice is the peace. And it's not a situation where, okay, we have, you know, it's, it's not a... Um, I just, it's, it's like it's not a winsome argument. It's not, he's not coming in to convince us of anything. He just did it. Mm-hmm. And it's not circumstantial. Right. You know, it's right. absolutely 100% secure. Nothing can take what he has purchased for you away from you. And so one of the, one he's of the ways. He's accomplished it completely. Totally. Right. And so you have peace no matter what the storms are that are surrounding you, no matter what the circumstances are that are rocking your world. In him, you have absolute security. In him, you have a God who looks on you with utter delight, who sings over you. As the Old Testament repeatedly put it, I I love this, that when you're in the midst of serious crisis, that God surrounds you. Like I, just, I love that idea that there's a, God surrounds me. It's mm-hmm. like He's on every side of me, protecting me. That I'm, you know, as, as Ephesians one puts it, I'm in Him. I'm in him. Nothing nothing can violate that. Nothing can rip me away from him. I'm totally safe, and therefore I'm at peace no matter what comes because nothing can overturn that reality. And it doesn't matter what you have done or what I have done or what we are supposed to do. That's, you know, because what's typical of a peace treaty is that it has a bunch of things in it about, okay, you know, we had our hostilities, but now we're going to be okay because you're going to give up your nuclear testing and I'm going to give up eating burritos right before I go to bed or whatever the situation is. We've worked out, you know, with acknowledgement of our past mistakes and promises to our future behavior. Now we have a peace treaty. And this is, I think, you know, for, for Paul to come and say he himself is our peace. It's like, it's, it's an accomplished thing. We're at peace. We don't have to worry about we're We're not even going to be dealing with, well, yeah, but they did or yeah, but they won't do that doesn't matter. He is our peace right now. Um, when it says that it's broken down the dividing wall of hostility, we were talking about that too at, yeah. at lunch. What 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 do you think that's a reference to? What's that probably a metaphor of? So, I mean, if you went to the first first century in the days when Jesus was conducting his ministry, and you went to Herod's temple, mm-hmm. there are different courts. There's there's the court of the Jews, there's court of the priests, there's the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, and so there's all these. Let me, let me take a guess. What the court of the Gentiles is probably. 
on the outside. <laughs> yeah, it's, okay. it's going to be a little <laughs> bit farther away. Okay. So it's like, oh, you're second class, you know, yeah. and, and there's an essence of that. And so what this is saying is that in Christ, that those walls that, that section off who worships where and how close, gone. Yeah. Gone. I read a thing as I was reading about this, that on the wall of the court of the Gentiles, that there was a... A sign that mm-hmm. said that if you ventured past this wall and you were not part of the nation of Israel, that there, as it said, that nobody but you'd have nobody to, but to blame for but your yourself death. for your death. Yeah, that that's not just history. We have that actual stone. Archaeologists <laughs> have found that stone with that writing on there. So this isn't one of those mythological stories from history past. This yeah, is something no, we, that actually was there. Yep. If you, it's a, it's a venture all. Yeah, abandon all hope, ye who enter mm-hmm. here, whatever. So like, it's not even a Gentiles thing. Gentiles were not allowed to come closer than that point. This isn't even a thing of a wall like keep you out. This is like the Berlin Wall. Mm-hmm. This is like if you find a way through it or around it or you ignore it, you're going to die. Yeah, and I, what I want you to notice, because this this hits again something that in this passage from 11, verse 11 to verse 22 that you see again and again is the stressing of those that are far off and those that are near. And far off and nearness, far off and nearness. And so what he's doing is he's tearing down any wall of hostility that might keep somebody far off. Yeah. Now, this is where we get to, to uh, pick on our friends that did the English Standard Version again in verse 15. We keep saying that. I want to say we fully recognize that the editors of the ESV are light years smarter than us. Very much so. <laughs> they know way more about translating bibles than we absolutely do. but i will say that there's some decisions they make that mark and i are like no I, first 15 reads by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace you know jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it and if you read this, it sounds almost like Paul is contradicting what Jesus himself said, that Paul is saying that Jesus abolished the law here of commandments expressed in ordinances. And that's, and that is not at all what the, what it's trying to say. Um, what he abolished was and what that makes you think. One of the reasons why when you read that, you go, wait, well, what? Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount said, says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill but it. To fulfill it. Yeah. And here you've got, the choices in this translation saying that he came and by abolishing the law, it's like, you're like, Whoa, hold on. Yeah. What's going on here? Other, other translations we looked at, uh, like the new King James version, for example, says by abolishing the enmity that's being caused by that. Um, the Christian standard Bible said it made this of no effect because, mm-hmm. and that's the one I, I really like that idea because what Jesus did by fulfilling the law and by removing us from being under the judgment of the law is that he didn't say that the he's not saying that the law didn't exist that these things weren't there he's what he's doing is he's saying he made it so that it is a it doesn't affect yeah. us yeah the literal like you may recognize some of this in the english language that the literal greek word there is kata argeo and it comes from ergon, ergos, which is work or ergon. Mm-hmm. We get ergonomic chair. It's what you, something you do when you're at work to be more effective. It's work. And so when it's got the prefix a, not, followed by that erga, ergos, it's not working. So in, that's not abolishing. It's saying it makes it ineffective. It's not. Right. It's not at work doing these things. Right. It takes. It. Cha- it, it just. It stops the effect of the Correct. law. So, um, and yeah, we again we acknowledge the guys that. <laughs> worked on the ESV Bible are much better 
Bible scholars than we are. Just sometimes, and, and the funny thing is, is that this is just a situation where both of us felt like it was an unfortunate way of arranging the English words mm-hmm. because it seemed to imply that Paul was contradicting Jesus. But it, it, it's almost like when I read this, it's almost like Paul is also taking another little dig at legalism. Because rather than just saying, you know, by making ineffective or whatever that word would be, the abolishing, uh, the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. It's like he uses all the different, you know, the three different Greek words that are typically translated when it's referring to law. It's namas, entele, and then where we get dogma from is that mm-hmm. last word, ordinances. Mm-hmm. And so he's throwing it all on the table saying, okay, all of this, I'm, I'm putting it aside so that I, it's fulfilled in me. It can't keep you apart from one another. Yeah. You can't use this to lord over each other and claim that there's a division. I've, I've fulfilled it and given my righteousness to both of you so you can't use it as a hammer to beat each other with anymore. And the result of that is that he creates in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The The idea of one new man in place of the two, you know, we were talking about bringing that radical person into our family to mm-hmm. come live as part of our family. And he's taking it a step further here. He's saying that, no, 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 he, you're, the two of you are one. It's indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. If you are going to continue to be derogatory and, and aggressive and, and dismissive or worse toward this person that is part of the household of faith that you disagree with, it's the same thing as if you were doing this to yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the church, one body. Yeah, that's, that's the series that we're in. We're one body. Jesus prayed that we'd be perfected in unity. We all come together for one mission, under one will, one banner, all that kind of stuff. And so what we do to tear one down affects the whole body. You know, if Christians are tearing one another down, it affects the whole body. When Christians behave improperly or without grace or mercy or without any kind of charity toward culture at large, guess what? It brings shame on the whole body. Yeah. Um, and so it really does. Like when, when you sign up, there's a unity to this that, that we're called to that's pretty remarkable. And so we need to, to love as we love ourselves. I saw a, um, a Facebook graphic recently because Facebook graphics are the purveyors of all truth. <laughs> I, but, Some, sometimes they're, they're pretty clever. But this one made me stop and think. Somebody had put in a thing that said, it's hard for me to believe there's a God who loves me when I hear that from a church that doesn't even seem to like me. Hmm. And I thought about that and I was like, <sighs> ooh, yeah, that's, and let me just be clear. We're not suggesting that the church should tolerate sin no. or the church should embrace sin or that the church needs to dilute its message in any way. But there is a way that you can love, that you can express things with, a, with graciousness, with love, even as you're standing for your principles, you don't have to be uh, you know, vicious about it. You don't, you don't have to be the, have you ever had this happen? I don't know where like you're driving to church on Sunday morning and somebody cuts you off in traffic and in South Florida in particular, <laughs> that happens all the time. You know where this is going, right? And you get mad and you get on that horn and you're getting on the tail and you're trying to push past them. And then they turn into the church parking lot where you're going right in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> and you're thinking, yeah, this is going to be awkward. <laughs> I'll just keep going straight. I'm, I'm just going to, you know what? I think today God's calling me to go to IHOP or Starbucks or something rather than church. But it is something where, you know, 
the people that you're the people that were brought together with were brought together with by something that is completely apart from anything in our human experience were brought together through the blood of Christ and it is in this particular case i mean i i'm trying to imagine what that yeah i'm i'm still searching for that you know uh contemporary metaphor there's really i don't know that i've ever encountered that you know i i was I was brought up going to a church with people that looked and sounded pretty much a lot like me. Mm-hmm. And and that division that's existing, what Paul is referring to here between the Jews and the Gentiles is you don't even have one side you know, claiming to be the victim of the other. You have both sides who are absolutely certain that the other side is destroying the world. You know, they, they, they bitterly hate the other one. Mm-hmm. The, and the Roman world is happy to persecute the early church and the Jewish Christians and, and the Jewish communities are certain that the Gentiles are destroying the world with all their sin and perversion. And so you've got two sides that are <laughs> and in the hell-bent middle, on hating each other. And in the middle is the church. Paul. Yes, yeah. Paul. <laughs> you know, the church that comes out. And one, you know, Jesus gives this teaching. It's one of my, I love the brilliance of Jesus when he's dealing with conflict. Um, because what Jesus doesn't do is say, look at the Roman world and the Caesars and I'm the rightful king of the world and therefore disengage and don't pay taxes and go to war and seek the throne. He does not, he's God. He's brilliant enough to know that you're not going to change the world via politics. Right. <laughs> he really, he's. Wait, wait a minute. What? Yeah. Oh, no, you're right. Yes. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> Power corrupts no matter what brand or label you put on a political party. That is true. Gosh, it's just hopeless to think that the world's going to change through them. It Just forget about it. So anyway, Jesus one day has two camps come up to him. One is the Herodians. Now, the Herodians, they love foreign influence. The Herod was put into power by the Roman Senate, you know, when he first started. They've got all the support of the outsiders. He's the king. Um, or at least the Tetrarchs are by this point, so Herod's sons. And you get you get them, that, and they're coming, and they're saying, all right, let's 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 have a debate with Jesus. <laughs> and, and then that, he's got the Pharisees who come alongside. Now, the Pharisees are the Jewish people that are saying, we've got to protect our heritage and protect our children and seek purity and righteousness and get Israel back to its glory days. And Rome is ruining everything. The Gentiles are ruining everything. And so in Matthew 22, you have the Pharisees that show up and they, they're trying to trick Jesus, right? And they, they go to him and they say, hey, teacher, we know that you're true and you teach the way of God truthfully. I mean, just condescending, dripping out of the I was going to say, I imagine that Gosh. it was exactly put that way. Hey, teacher. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm actually hearing that as yeah. you're saying it. I think that's just exactly how they would have and said it. Jesus doesn't punch them. Yes. <laughs> and And you... You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are, you're not swayed by appearances. <laughs> you know, you can just feel it. You he can. says, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So he's in, he's in a tricky situation. If he says pay taxes, then all the Jews go, oh, this guy that's supposed to be the Messiah thinks that we should bow the knee to these Gentiles and yeah. the wickedness of the Roman Caesars and all the the oppression that's coming from Rome. And Behind the, curtain one, bad yeah. choice. <laughs> yeah. So the Pharisees know that if he says, yeah, pay taxes, they've got him. Right. But on the other side, the Herodians are over there and they're kind of, you know, waiting with their arms crossed going, man, if he says not to pay taxes, we've got him. You know, he's, he's, he's betraying Rome. He's going to go straight to a cross. 
he's going to be crucified tomorrow. Behind curtain two, another bad choice. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. And then Jesus does this really brilliant thing. He says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? So at least he gets that in there. Thank you. (laughs) He says, show me the coin for the tax. And so they bring him a denarius. And what's really fascinating about the denarius of this time, on one side of the coin, it's got a picture of Caesar, and it refers to him as a son of God. It's a blasphemous coin, right? Caesar is, you know, here he is, and it's it's referring to either Tiberius or Augustus. I'm not, but he's Tiberius Augustus Caesar, referring to him as the son of God, and on the back side of it is a picture of his mother, and it refers to her as the Pontiff Maxim, which is high priest. So, again, blasphemous, right. very offensive mm-hmm. to the Jews. But the Pharisees are like, we shouldn't have to give over these coins, right? You know, and the Herodians are saying, you'd better give over these coins. And Jesus asked this brilliant question. He says, whose image and inscriptions on this? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. And so he has this mic drop moment where he says, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And you're left there going, okay, so we're to pay our taxes to Caesar, which, by the way, means you support the king regardless of whether or not you share his political party. You don't get to not pay taxes. Right. But hidden behind that is this brilliant teaching. You know, they come and they say, should we pay taxes? And he says, give me the coin. And then he holds up the coin and he says, whose image is on this? And they say, Caesar's. Now, what's left behind that that's not said in this teaching is you give the coin to Caesar because it bears his image. What do you give to God then? You give to God that which bears his image. And who bears his image? You Pharisees, you bear his image. You Herodians, you bear his image. All of you collectively together belong to the Lord. And what is his desire for you? That you would be one. Yeah. That you would be united. That you would love one another and lift one another up. And so while they're bickering about politics, here's Jesus saying, man, you've got a higher calling on your life. Mm. Stop the bickering and recognize that you bear the image of a God who longs most for you to unify around the principles of the law of love. Hmm. You know, I, I heard that story, obviously, when I was a kid. Going to There was a Sunday school story that I heard back in church. And until you talked about it today, I'd never, you just kind of pass by the and render unto God the things that are God's. Mm-hmm. I never bothered to think about what does that mean? Yeah. You know, well, I, I was, I'd never, you know, what, what does that mean? The things that are God's. But when you said that today, I was like, that makes perfect sense. And once again, Jesus is the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. He always is the smartest guy in the room, you know? And, and so here's these Gentiles, right? They want, you know, Jews and Gentiles and they want divisions. And Jesus is looking at the Jewish community going, do they or do they not bear the image of God? Do yeah. they or do they not warrant your respect and your love? Are they not valuable? You got to humble yourself and go, man, those who are, whether, whether it's those who are far off or those who are near, we're all made in the image of God and we all, God is calling all of us. Yeah. All and, of us. And to, to put that in a modern context, whether they're wearing a red t-shirt or a blue t-shirt. Yes. They're still bearing the image of God. Yep. So we, we got through to verse 15, which at the end there says that he might create in himself one new man. Uh, he's creating in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
That's yeah. exactly what we've been talking about here. Um, and he came and preached and, peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. You know, just, just that line, I, and it just occurred to me as you read it, you know, that he's reconciling both to God and one body through the cross. You know, when you stand in front of the cross, you what does it call you to realize? It calls you to realize the weight of your sin. Yes. And the, the lengths to which God would go to forgive your sin, the extent that he's willing to go to call you to himself in love. And so when you think of looking over your shoulder and looking down on somebody according to your standards, you know, at the foot of the cross, <laughs> you, you, you can't do that. Right. You know, here's God who is willing to go to a cross to forgive you of your shortcomings, which the the chasm between God and you, much, 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 much bigger than the chasm between you and the one you look down on. Mm-hmm. And if he's willing to go to a cross, you need to be willing to to take up your cross and love that one yeah. that you might look down on. Thereby killing the hostility. That's right. <laughs> so verse 17 reads, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, which that's that's a call back to being brought near, having access to God. He's, he's explaining, you know, in case you missed the point, the point is that we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Which also means, by the way, apart from the spirit, you don't have access anyway, so don't boast about anything. Your your access to the Father comes through Christ in the Spirit. So you don't come with your own, you don't warrant access to the Father. Both of you need to approach with mercy given. So verse 19, if you listen to our podcast last week with the, and, and you, and as for you, <laughs> this is another moment where in my mind's eye, Paul puts the newspaper down, pulls his glasses down <laughs> to the end of his nose, All looks right. over at you and goes, so then you. Yeah. Because at this point, now it, children. Yes. Well, as I'm as I'm reading this, he's talking about me as part of a group, me as part of a group, me as part of a group, and then all of a sudden, I feel like he's looking straight at me. Mm-hmm. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. I was looking for a period. Paul doesn't like periods. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is, I mean, this is the yeah. conclusion to everything that he's been talking about with, with yeah. the unity thing. You, you're in Christ. You, one Spirit having access to the Father. So therefore, you're no longer strangers and aliens. And that gets back. You know how we were talking about how this this whole section really majors on those that are far off and right. those that are near. Right. And even even those words, strangers, it's, it's xenon where we get the idea xenophobia. If you hate foreigners, you're a xenophobe or whatever. Well, that's xenos. You're a foreigner. You're, you have no rights of the land. But aliens, the, the actual word there is paraoikoi, and that means uh, close to home. It literally means those two words together, close to the house. And so some of you, you're no longer strangers, you're no longer far away, and you're no longer near. Hear that. You're no longer far away, you're no longer near, but now you're fellow citizens with the saints, you're members of the household of God. And so the, the way that I'm using this, like the Gentiles are the ones that are far off, the Jews are the ones that are near, 
and the way I the way I imagine this is it's like it's like the inside the house is the safe place. You know, there's the warm roaring fire, and outside it's twenty below. It doesn't matter if you're far away from the home or you're right outside the door. When it's twenty below, you're going to freeze to death. <laughs> it's true. The goal is not to be near. The goal is to be inside. Right. And what Jesus comes to, he says, "Hey, you're no longer those that are really far off, and you're no longer those that are right outside the window looking at the roaring fire." You're in. Right. Both of you are grafted into the household of God. You're inside. You're safe. You're warm. You're mine. It's amazing. This goes back to, again, the description of how the, the Jewish nation was, you know, they regarded themselves separate, obviously, from this Gentile world of very savage behavior and all this rampant sin. And they saw themselves as a, as a, as a, insular community of mm-hmm. of peace and and righteousness and protection by god and so forth and this here is saying that okay and now you're going to bring these others into that same community That's right um now the, both of you are being welcomed inside so it doesn't yeah, there's a there's a humbling here that paul is laying down for the jews he's saying true. even it's, those that are near have to come inside <laughs> say it's everybody's outside the house yeah <laughs> in this yeah. situation than being brought if, in i mean for the jews that are looking to themselves as the source of righteousness trying to be good enough for god god's going you're outside <laughs> you're still in the cold you need to get in christ you need to get in the household you need to be wrapped up in the spirit and then you're one then it's one family. We're all, we're all united in Christ now. Yeah. Verse 20 says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I thought that was cool because the, you know, this, there's a tendency in our modern 21st century church. We, we like, um, well, this church is actually maybe a little bit different because we enjoy some Old Testament around here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you're happiest when you're telling stories from Genesis, you know, so is Pastor Tom, he loves, you know, get him into a good Old Testament story. That's his, that's his comfortable mm-hmm. place. He enjoys that. Me too. Yeah. So it's, so, but in a lot of churches, it's like the Old Testament doesn't seem to exist. It's like, <laughs> we, it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. The apostles, we got, we're good with the apostles, but what about this prophets thing? You mean I have to pay attention to Isaiah and Jeremiah and all those guys from the Old Testament? And that's, to, this is one of the situations where, and there's this is the, there's a whole other podcast in this. If we ever tackle the subject of dispensationalism versus covenant view of, of of history and scripture, really the dividing point in that is what do you think the church is? Is it a, is it a continuation of God's people Israel? Are we the true Israel grafted in? Or is the church this mystery that they didn't see in the Old Testament, yeah. which would be the dispensationalist view? Um, this it's like is like a new the, episode or something. Yeah, and like God's changed, and now there's a new episode of how He deals with people. And at some point, uh, there's a guy that's going to be standing in a shower, and he's going to come to the realization that the last season was all just a dream. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm, that's too old of a reference. Does anybody remember Dallas with Bobby Ewing in the shower? He got killed. No, 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 sorry. Probably not. Probably not. There's, there was a character on the show that got killed off, and then they decided to bring him back the next year. So they started off the season with he was in a shower, and he suddenly woke up like he had dozed off in the shower and dreamed the whole previous so, year. So you're still back in the days when you had to rewind the VHS. Yes, you, you've lost I am. a lot. I've of lost our- a lot of people. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can find it probably on Netflix somewhere. But this idea of the I always point them to this verse. I'm like built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's one foundation, the apostles mm-hmm. and prophets, and both of them resting on the cornerstone, which is Christ Jesus, because he alone could bear the weight of mm-hmm. all of that. 
You know, the, 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 the cornerstone in, in a building is the, you know, it's like, it's the footer. It's the place where all the weight comes together. Yeah. It's that. It also determines how the rest of the house is built. Yeah. It absolutely does. And it's the one stone. It's the one part of the house that's irreplaceable. Yeah. If, if there's no cornerstone, then the house just collapses. And that's why I think it's a brilliant term to be used for Jesus because of that aspect of it. This, the house goes in the direction that he determines. It's as strong as he is, and, it, and he's irreplaceable, and it stands because of him. I just I love the way that this speaks of the church. You know, Peter, Peter picks up on this where he calls us all living stones, you know, that we're part of this building that God is building. Um, Paul and elsewhere, he'll talk about how Jesus lays a foundation that the church is now building on. Um, but this idea that everywhere you look, you know, every person that you come across, it's kind of like they're the raw materials of how God is building heaven. Mm-hmm. When you think of heaven, you know, you think of gold streets and all that, that, that. But the Bible, when it talks about heaven, it spends much more time talking about the people um, and, it, and it refers to, you know, the architecture by tribes and by the apostles, and it's referring to people. And so when you're walking around in this world, you're, you're really interacting with the, the raw materials mm-hmm. that God is using to build heaven. You know, you and I are living stones that are one day going, when we're glorified, we're going to make up heaven. But here and now, we are, we are a temple. We're more boulder-shaped yeah. now. <laughs> Sorry. It's true. <laughs> this is true. true. It's true. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, I need to I need anyway. <laughs> but we're living stones and 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 it says that he's going to grow us into a holy temple in the Lord which is being built together to be a dwelling place for God by the spirit. That to me, you know, it, it, this is more than just saying that God is going to gather us to himself because he is. But this is also saying that God is preparing in us a place where he will come and dwell with us. He's that we will be a dwelling place for God. Mm-hmm. Not just is this isn't some place that that we go to, it's some place where God comes to us. Yeah. And dwells in our midst. It's it's amidst it's a, it's a really it's a pretty beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. You know, when I when I have frustration with somebody who's a a believer. I'm just trying to imagine, like, if, if there's somebody who's a Christian that annoys me, other than me, other, other than you, yeah, <laughs> like you're you're part of the architecture of heaven. You are yeah. you're you're the one that God is using to craft His delight. You're part of His body. You know, right. it it changes the way we should see each other. That right now, the church is a bunch of unpolished you know we're, we're still kind of under construction but god sees us as we will be and he delights in us we're you know his masterpiece this this amazing temple that he delights to dwell in and i think if we had his eyes and we could see each other how he sees us perfect radiant righteous justified glorified all that stuff that god has the ability to look forward to where we're going to be if we could see each other for what we're going to be i bet we'd treat each other a lot different that's true you a brick me (laughs) also a brick (laughs) c.s lewis writes in the weight of glory he says this it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter 
it is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. I just love that. You've never met a mere mortal. Uh, you know, when C.S. Lewis drops the mic, the, yeah. mic, the <laughs> mic is well dropped. Yeah. So we'll let that stand as our last word. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us this week and that it will be, have been productive and helped you understand more about this amazing passage we encourage you to uh, keep up with the messages as well as the podcast. You can find those from the One Body, One Mission series at our website at riovistachurch.com or using our smartphone app. This podcast is also available at the website and on our smartphone app, and it's available through Apple Podcasts and Google Play and Spotify. If you have any questions or suggestions that you'd like to make regarding the podcast, we invite you to send us an email. Our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. And you can find all the back episodes of our podcast on our page at the website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. We'll see you next week. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.